1888 Podcast Network. Welcome to the Purpose of Past Tense. This podcast series connects with innovative entrepreneurs in conversation, asking them to detail their creative journey from concept through completion. Join us. To now give a huge thank you to Darren Joffe, Farmer D, who came all the way up here from Encinitas to spend his evening with us and to share some of his knowledge with all of us here in, in Orange tonight. So thank you so much, Darren, for coming and being part of the Orange Homegrown family for an evening. We really appreciate it. Darren is the Leachtag Foundation's Director of Agricultural Innovation and Development, where he manages the strategic planning, community engagement, and operations of the 67.5-acre Leachtag Commons property. He's the founding director of Coastal Roots Farm, located within the Commons property. Coastal Roots Farm's primary goal are to be a source of health and organic food, model sustainable agriculture best practices, host Jewish rituals and celebrations, and serve as a tool for strengthening food security in North County, San Diego. Darren was born in South Africa and moved with his family to Atlanta, Georgia when he was three years old. He's the author of the acclaimed book, Citizen Farmers, which you can purchase tonight, and Darren will gracefully sign for you. Um, the bi biodynamic way to grow healthy food, build thriving communities, and give back to the earth. He's the founder of Farmer D Organics and Farmer D Consulting, and spent the past 20 plus years designing and building biodynamic farms and gardens all over the country. Thank you so much, Darren, for spending your evening here in the city of Orange with Orange Homegrown and this wonderful group of community members. We are ready to be inspired by the information you share with us tonight. Um, I think it's to say that we easy to say that we're all in this all in this room. We're all passionate about where our food comes from. So, thank you so much, Darren. It's great to be here. Um, I really love what uh, Megan Orange Homegrown's doing. Uh, it's really inspirational what's happening in this community and. Um, you know, Southern California, oh, we need it everywhere, Southern California in particular. Um, so it's refreshing to, to see the kind of uh, efforts, good works that are happening here. And I'm honored to be able to share a little bit about um, my background and kind of what I'm up to and um, kind of an invitation for all of you to kind of be citizen farmers in a sense and um, hopefully feel uh, inspired by, by, uh, by this talk and, you know, this community, this gathering, this get together. So, um, so a little bit about my background, how I got into farming. Um, I went to college in the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So it's kind of sad to see the Badgers lose this week, but they did good. And I also went to college at the University of Georgia, so I do have somebody in, in the fight if you've watched football. Um, so, but I didn't graduate from either one, actually. I went to both, and I had a lot of fun, and I got um, really inspired, um, but didn't really follow the academic path so much because farming is something that you really learn doing more so than, than studying. So um, my freshman year of college, uh, I spent a summer uh, on an organic farm as an apprentice, kind of interning. I got credit through the University of Wisconsin. And during that time, I was really, the, the reason why, and those of you who get the book will get the full story, but I was actually just eating a turkey sandwich one day for lunch uh, in Madison. And I was like, oh my God, like, where did this thing come from? Like, how come I eat every day and I've never grown anything that I eat? Like, where, where did this turkey sandwich come from? And like, who grew it and how? And I want to learn how to grow a turkey sandwich. 
And so I literally, like, you know, I'm an 18 year old kid. I was probably stoned, and I ran, you know, I was in Madison. I was like, wow, like, how do you grow this thing? So I, I went into the, I walked over to the ag school, and I was like, you know, I'm really interested to learn about growing food. You know, is there a program for the summer? And so I found an internship, and I got it on organic, picked out a really cool organic farm. And I started to learn about all the issues of our food system. The guy who I studied under gave me a couple of really good books. If you haven't read The Contrary Farmer by Gene Logsdon, that was one of my favorites he gave me. Um, it actually inspired my opening of my book, um, The Parable. Uh, and he was a really inspirational teacher. And, and I learned a lot about how broken our food system is and how disconnected we are from our food and how as consumers, um, the whole idea of being a citizen farmer is you don't have to be a farmer to actually have an impact on the food system and support the right kind of food. Um, you decide every day how you can influence that. And I just started to learn about you know, the, the, the th basically endangered species that is the small family farm. You know, fa family farms are going out of business at such a rapid rate, um, being consolidated into big ag. Um, the age of the average farmer was getting, you know, bigger and bigger from, you know, you've got your average farmers like in their 60s. Uh, There's no generation to follow. And I learned about all the toxic chemicals that are used in agriculture and how harmful they are for our environment, um, for human health. I started to learn about the way that animals are raised and um, how disconcerting that is. And these were things, you know, I never really thought about. And I was just eating my way through, you know, my childhood and into college and never really thought twice about what I was eating and um, the way that things were grown. And so I became really passionate and to some extent a little bit dogmatic about, you know, telling other people about how they should eat um, and realizing that it's more complicated than that. And so I started to also get really passionate about educating myself. I actually started to really want to learn, but at school it wasn't really a program that fit what I wanted to study, which was sustainable agriculture and community-supported agriculture and, and biodynamic farming. So I, I basically kind of dropped out of school to pursue that as something that I wanted to really learn by doing. So I did a, several other apprenticeships on organic and biodynamic farms. And it was the greatest learning of my life, and I really found my passion. I found kind of what I wanted to do as a career. My parents, my mom was like, I went home from, um, to tell them that I was you know, basically dropping out of school to become an organic biodynamic farmer. And at the time, this was 25 years ago, so people, this wasn't just like normal. Now it's kind of normal. I think we all know somebody who probably did that. Um, and my, my mom was like, okay, Farmer D. She started calling me Farmer D. We'll see, you know, we'll see how long that lasts. And you know, here I am 25 years later. And I still go by Farmer D, so it's her fault. But, um, but it's been a really fun journey and really um, interesting to see how you know, a lot more is happening to um, a more awareness, more consciousness, more projects um, are happening to, to try to, you know, remedy a broken food system, but we're still got a long way to go, right? There's still so many issues. Um, so, which is kind of dis discouraging, but also uh, gives a lot of purpose and meaning to what, to what we're all doing and, and you know, what, what our opportunity is in this generation, especially to pass on to the next generation. Um, so, I ended up um, buying a farm. I bought a 175-acre farm in southwest Wisconsin, the Kickapoo Valley, and I ran a community-supported agriculture farm there. And it was there that I really, um, a couple of key things happened for me during that time. It was kind of like my master's degree for me, kind of like really running a business, owning a farm, being responsible for a mortgage and staff and debt and 
um, managing a CSA and selling to restaurants and I had cows and a small dairy and um, goats and chickens and the whole put up maple syrup and canned and made cheese and it was like the best you know I think I slept like two hours a night but it was awesome and exhausting and I didn't make any money I think I made like five cents an hour I think I figured but it was the best life experience and um, I wouldn't have traded it for anything though I encourage most young people not to do that um, you know go get a job farming study under someone um, before you go take that leap but w a couple of things that really um, emerged for me in that experience were, you know, in order to afford to buy land to farm, I had to go about two hours west of the near of Madison, of the nearest big city, because you know land closer to the city was kind of like suburban, kind of you know expensive retirement, and then you go further. Eventually, you know, I got a couple hours out and could afford something. I think I my, bought my farm for about a thousand eighty dollars an acre give a little perspective of what you pay for land around here and still really hard to make it make it work um, but it put me far away from the community that I was living in it put me pretty far away from culture and the city and my customer and so that wasn't good for me and it also was not great for my customers because you know for them to come visit the farm it was like a two-hour each way schlep and that's a big journey to come see where your vegetables are grown maybe once or twice a year my CSA members would come for a festival, but for the most part, they'd see me at the farmer's market, and that was it. And we had a nice relationship, and we'd share stories through the newsletter of what was happening on the farm and all the challenges and, you know, trying to really bring the farm to life for them. And, and it, you know, they were investing in, in us in the CSA model, and they were our partners, but they weren't connected. And I was exhausted, driving two hours at three in the morning to get a spot at the farmer's market to get in line and then by the end of the day and you, you know brought in maybe four or five hundred bucks and you're driving home to like chores and cleaning out the truck and milking the cows and getting ready it was just it was hard and so I started to think about well you know how do we get the food closer to the people you know so that people can actually engage with their food and the farmers that are growing it and engage in the process and farmers aren't so isolated from society. So I started to think about, well, could I build a community here on the farm? Maybe if I sold this experience rather than the produce, people would want to buy a little piece of this 175 acres, and I could build a little village, and my customers could come here. Um, you know, it was kind of a dream, pipe dream. Um, and then, uh, you know, that making that happen was just kind of overwhelming at 21 or whatever it was with no money. And so that was one, that was one big kind of realization for me that will play into kind of w what I do now a little later. The other thing that was interesting, and uh, I'll talk a little bit about biodynamics, is you know I got into bio into farming through the Michael Fields Institute, which is um, where biodynamics started in this country in Wisconsin, um, and you know I was just interested in like growing a turkey sandwich. I wasn't really looking for organic sandwich per se at the time or a biodynamic sandwich, but what was interesting is when you really look at that turkey sandwich, it is a biodynamic idea, in that it has the entire farm organism is, exists within that sandwich. Meaning it wasn't, if you, in a biodynamic farm, it's not just a tomato farm in Florida shipping tomatoes to me in Wisconsin and, you know, a grain farm in the mid, you know, somewhere in, the, you know, the plains shipping the, the grain and the dairy and so and the, all the vegetables and coming from all over the place, right? The average meal was traveling something like 2,000 miles at the time, which is crazy. Um, and so, you know, in biodynamics, you really look at the farm as a self-contained living organism. So what I was taught in biodynamics and what Steiner outlines in his agriculture lectures, um, those of you who aren't familiar with biodynamics, just briefly, it was started um, out of a, a series of lectures that Rudolf Steiner, who 
1924, gave these lectures. He, he was also known for starting the Waldorf School and a number of other really interesting um, anthroposophical initiatives. He was quite, quite the, um, the mind of his time. And, and uh, biodynamic farming, basically the idea is that you create a closed loop farming system. So it's organic farming. Everything that you would do in organic farming, you do in biodynamic farming. But what's different is that you don't just typically grow one crop or raise one animal. You do everything. And what you try to do is create a balanced farm organism where you're growing feed for animals. So you're not actually importing anything into the farm. You're actually growing the feed that you feed your animals. You can only have as many animals as you can support with your land. And then you grow in as much food as you can support with those animals, meaning the compost you make from those manures. And then you close that loop again and you make compost, feed the soil, grow plants for animals and people, you know, and continue to kind of re regenerate. It's this regenerative farming model. And, you know, regenerative agriculture is now becoming a very trendy kind of term and idea. And, and, in, and inherently biodynamics has, has been that way from, the, from its inception, its concept. Um, so that's the foundation of biodynamics, is creating a farm that truly self-sustains itself and regenerates itself that doesn't need anything from the outside. Um, on top of that, um, so, so inherently biodynamic farms are very dynamic, they're very diversified, they often have small animals, um, they're doing composting at some significant scale, they're growing a diverse array of vegetables and fruits and, um, and growing feed for animals and um, they're really, when you go visit different kinds of farms, if you go visit biodynamic farms, you'll notice something different about biodynamic farms. There's a different um, quality uh, and energy that happens there. It's been my experience. I was really attracted to it because I could just feel it and see it in the way that the food tasted and looked and the way the farms were kind of balanced and alive, very vibrant. And one of the ways they, that that happens is using what are called the biodynamic preparations. So in addition to this kind of fundamental philosophy of the farm as a closed-loop organism, there's also an aspect of acknowledging that the earth has been really depleted. Um, soils have been over-farmed. There's all kinds of frequencies in the atmosphere now, especially with all of our cell phones and radio stuff, and that a lot of the natural flow of energy and, and that, that flows in and out every day in our soil and our crops is disturbed. Um, and so how do you kind of enlivened somewhat depleted soils and atmosphere. And biodynamics has a, um, a set of remedies, homeopathic remedies for the soil, for the plants, and even for the atmosphere. And so they're pretty interesting when you really get into them. Um, they're medicines for the earth. And they're made with different herbs that go in the compost piles. Um, they're made with um, female cow manure, uh, ground up quartz crystals for silica. And they're basically just enlivening natural processes that are at work in nature. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you the kind of the very basic thinking of this, and then I'll talk about planting with the moon, because it will relate. <clears throat> you basically have the earth as a breathing, living organism, right? So all, you know, basically all this energy is moving towards the sun, right? Everything kind of grows towards the sun. And we're in this, we're in the, 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 our universe is a giant vortex of planets that are orbiting, rotating, and the sun is really the, the center of it, right? It's this big spiral. And so when, in biodynamics, there's this, um, these two polarities that are happening. There's this downward working force that's commonly called the earthly force that's related to lime and calcium in the soil, and it's basically when the earth is breathing in, right? So one way I like to explain this is if you, um, if you, if you think of it um, in the evening, the dew settles, 
right? In the same way that in the fall, the leaves fall, where kind of the earth breathes in. And that is largely because the sun is on the other side of the earth, right? So if you can kind of imagine with the gravitational forces kind of going up to the sun, well, when the sun is below us, that's kind of drawing down. When the sun comes up in the spring, in the, in the, in the morning, it rises and the dew rises. And in the spring, the sun is up and above us most of the time. This force is drawing outward and upward towards the sun. In the fall, and in the evening, you have this downward. It's kind of like your breath. And what's interesting is if you breathe and really follow the pattern of your breath, there's a strong impulse when you first start to breathe in, and then it, and then it calms. And when you first start to breathe out, there's a strong impulse, and it calms. And you breathe in. Calms. It's like the rising sun and the setting sun, right? There's this potent moment in the morning when the sun comes up, and there's just this, like, energy. That's when you spray the biodynamic preps to treat the upward working forces, which is silica. And that's the air and fire elements. It's the cosmic force. It's the ray, ray, rain up energy that happens. It's everything growing. And silica is in our hair. It's in our fingernails. It's the skin of apples. It's, it's like the, the cereal grasses um, that are very ray-like. They're very sharp and tall and spiny. The mountains, like the granite, the silica mountain ranges are very pointy. Um, so you can kind of see the form. A lot of times in biodynamics, there's this like formative force because you see the forms in nature. And so how do you understand them? And this is kind of interpreting these forces at work. Um, the, the downward working force that you see in the settling dew in the evening um, that's related to lime and calcium, um, you see plants that are calcium rich, unlike silica that are like bamboo and corn. They're more like broadleaf, viney, low growing crops. Um, spinach and lettuce and leafy greens and things that like to sprawl, um, melons and things. And then also you've got landscapes, limestone topography landscapes are rolling hills. They're very flat, the lime and the calcium. So you can kind of see these two polarities at work. And biodynamics uses them, literally the, 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 the silica, um, to make a preparation that you spray up in the atmosphere at the rising dew and the, and the, and the sunrise to treat the atmosphere and enliven those upward working forces that are stimulating the fire and air element, kind of the fruiting and the photosynthesis. The, the hairs on, on uh, corn and tomatoes, those white fuzzy hairs, those are silicic hairs that are photosynthesizing. They're capturing light like silica does and processing it into sugars to feed the plant. And that feeds the soil through the root exudates. And then you have this whole amazing cycle right, going on. Like the plant actually generates its own energy um, so you're enlivening that natural process, right? Because it's kind of, so I'm getting down in the, in the weasel. So you've got these two opposing polarities and you're enlivening them using biodynamic homeopathic remedies. The, the one to stimulate the soil that you spray in the evening when the dew's settling, largely in the fall, is made with manure, female cow manure, which is very, very earthly rich water earth element, cow's energy's all drawing down, they're digestive. Um, you use a cow horn because you have a point to a periphery. I'm going to get a little bit out there with you guys, but you stay with me for a minute. So cows ch channel energy down into their stomachs. They have all these stomachs and all these stages of digestion and rumination that happens. And so they are in, their manure is like this flat, homogenous, beautiful for fertility, like some of the best fertility in the garden because they have such a complicated digestive system. They're very internal animals. They're char channeling a lot of energy in there to, to have the energy to do that. 
deer are the opposite, right? They go from a point out to a periphery on their antlers. They're very external animals. They're very hypersensitive to their surroundings on the exterior, not on the interior. And their poop is really hard and small. Okay, so if you look at those differences, there's a lot, there's a very different digestive energy happening. So in biodynamics, you're looking at those things. You go, oh, okay, well, if I take this cow horn, that's this focal device that's channeling this energy inward, and I stuff it with female cow manure that is the super rich downward earthly energy material that's like the most fertile you know, stuff on the planet, basically, and I bury it in the earth in the fall when all that energy is down there in the ground, and then I dig it up, and it's beautiful, rich, potentized cow manure, and I sp stir it in water for an hour and rotating vortices to enliven it, which is a homeopathic, you're replicating these forces, and then you spray it on on your farm in the evening. And you think, what the heck is that going to do, right? And like a handful to the acre. This is very potent stuff. And what you find when you go visit biodynamic farms and you eat biodynamic food is something in that works. Like you're just charging up the soil, and you're charging up the atmosphere, and you're enlivening that, that ecosystem on top of a really balanced farm organism. And then you plant with the stars and the moons, right? So, so because you're acknowledging that there's these forces at play, right? This, I'm explaining a little bit of the sun force and the moon is a reflection of that. Um, you get a lot of lunar, the moon has the kind of the most accepted and known influence on plants and water. And so clearly there's a, a huge influence with the moon. Um, so what, what, what's your name? Christian's referring to with planting with the moon is that um, one aspect of biodynamics is, again, you're just in rhythm, right? You're finding that rhythm, that nature's rhythm. You're planting. So one of the things you do is you plant in rhythm with the moon. So part of that is when um, the full moon starts to wane, that, that's ref that is charging kind of the downward working polarity. So you want to plant things that are going to grow roots at that time. And when the moon is new and kind of getting going towards its, its waxing, that energy is kind of going up and outward. So, you know, so you've got these two kind of, again, these kind of polarities that are at work. And depending on what you want to happen, um, you can influence what you plant by planting at the right time of the moon. And then there's also the influence of the constellations. So the moon is constantly moving through. Um, we're actually moving, and the angle to the moon, uh, is the constellations are changing right every couple of days, depending on the size of the constellation. You're in Cancer for a couple of days, and you're in. You know, you're just moving through all the signs. And what in biodynamics, the philosophy is that, and this is based on uh, ancient, I think, uh, Hibernian and Egyptian uh, tradition, is that you basically are, um, the influence of that constellation is most um, potent at, the t at that time. So if you're in a water sign, if the moon is in a water sign, you want to plant, cultivate, harvest, even eat leafy greens, watery crops, right? So water sign relates to leafy crops. If you're in, a, uh, in an earth sign, then root crops. If you're in a fire sign, fruit crops. And if you're in an air sign, flowering crops. So the, the, there's a biodynamic planting calendar that will kind of show you, you know, which sign you're in and what you should plant and what the timing is of that when it's in the constellation, when it's transitioning, it's kind of not a good time to do anything. And then when it's in the next constellation, you're so you're kind of following this rhythm, and you can kind of get a little bit more success, I guess you could say. You're kind of increasing, you know, farming's hard, and you all kinds of challenges. So this is just another tool in the toolbox to kind of help you be more successful. 
Um, I've noticed it a lot. Um, with planting, there's some subtle differences, and you, you tend to be more successful when you do follow this rhythm, especially with harvesting, I've noticed. Like if you harvest something like garlic, like a storage crop or an onion crop, in a water sign, it won't last as long. There's just a bit higher moisture content in the atmosphere or something that's going on. But if you harvest in like an air sign, you know, a root sign, they tend to store better. They tend to kind of like, you know, when you pull it out of the ground and it starts to cure. So anyway, that's just a little bit. There's like a lot of stuff on, on the um, kind of planting with, with the moon and, you know, again, different things you can do to help potentize and increase your success by working with the rhythms. I mean, I think that's really what it comes down to. And, and in many ways, kind of tying back to my passion for this stuff, like you know, what got me interested in biodynamics in part is that I feel like we are kind of these natural instruments. We have this in inherent ability when we're open to it to kind of connect to nature and be a part of it. We're, you know, I think we, we're all farmers when you go back far enough. And um, there's something there that, that you're able to cultivate in your relationship to the earth and to yourself when you grow plants and when you start to be um, more receptive to an and, uh, develop these tools of observation and intuition and connection that um, just feels really good. You know, and the more you get out of the urban environment, the easier it is. You know, how many times you've driven out in the countryside and you're just like, ah, you know, there's like less distraction and more calm. And I think this kind of farming also just further um, enhances our ability to kind of just be and kind of connect to that part of ourselves. That's really hard to connect to these days. Two short stories I want to share. So one is um, while I was farming, um, I had one of my CSA members, uh, daughter, 10-year-old daughter, was uh, I was babysitting her, make a little bit of cash on the side when you're farming, things are tough. And I was babysitting her and she was showing me um, the video of her Jewish summer camp, first year, she's about to go to overnight summer camp. She's really nervous and excited and she had like a, the, the promotional video she was showing me. And I was watching it with her and all of a sudden, I just had this like overwhelming emotional reaction to it because I went to Jewish summer camp as a kid uh, overnight camp. It was like the funnest thing I did all years. You go spend, you know, a month in a cabin with your friends, with no parents, and you're just running around the woods, and you're learning how to build fires, and you're camping, and you're singing, and you're, you know, eating really crappy food, unfortunately. Um, but it's a really rich experience, and I felt like in many ways that's where I fell in love with nature. It's where I kind of started to develop a spiritual connection to, to the earth and to my, my cultural identity, too, as a, as a Jewish person which ha happens to have really deep roots in agriculture. I didn't learn that, though, in Hebrew school at, at camp. And so, but I did, something really resonated with me in this video, which was the blessing you say after the meal. It's called the Birkat Hamazon. And like, it was like ingrained in my memory from singing it, you know, 700 kids strong every day, three times a day. And I was like, wow, that blessing is all about the dew and the harvest and praying for the rain. It's, it's an agricultural blessing. And we just all screamed it and said it, and but we never really connected to it. There was no farm at camp. And she went to bed, and I just had this, like, vision. I was like, I want to bring the farm to Jewish summer camp. You know, like, and so I, like, wrote this whole vision out, and I, like, pitched it to the Jewish summer camp. I went to, that she was going to go to in Wisconsin, and the one that I went to as a kid growing up. And they both were like, wow, that's a really cool idea. This would be a great program. You know, how do we do it? You know, we started going through, well, you got to start three months before the kids get there, build the garden, and then the fit. And it was just like, oh, man, that's, that's going to be challenging. Like, and I'm running a farm. And I was like, that sounds like a good idea. So I shelved it for a while. But years later, um, 
and I'll, I'm going to jump back to it. So it was just a little little teaser to the to to the story. So then I, I moved to San Francisco from the I sold the farm. I had this kind of desire to bring kind of get more into urban ag. Um, I had an opportunity, long story short, to to move to San Francisco for a job with a non a nonprofit doing urban agriculture in low income communities. Um, is a called Slug. It's called the San Francisco League of Urban Gardeners. And the director was giving a talk in Wisconsin. I ended up taking him out for a, a, a Hennessy afterwards. And he started asking me questions. The next thing you know, he flew me to San Francisco. And he says, I want you to pick one of these five jobs. I'm, I'm bringing you out here. You're selling your farm. You're selling your falafel cart. You're selling your pizza business. You're coming, to, you're coming to San Francisco. But I ended up running a farm, taking on a position there to run a farm in a youth prison. Um, it was a prison for um, like really, really rough kids, like felons who... They couldn't, they were getting, uh, they, were, they were too bad, basically, for, like, the regular youth detention services programs, and so they went to this place called Law Cabin Ranch, which was, like, 700 acres in the middle of nowhere. Of course, I was, like, visiting, like, all these urban farms in San Francisco that we had, and I went to that place. I was like, ah, oh, I don't care if it's a prison. This is where I want to be. Like, this is, you know, but it was a really, it was a program that was desperately needing um, somebody to take it over because it was falling apart, so I took it over, and I ran a farm in this youth prison for a year. It was an awesome experience, it really, and being a part of an organization that looked at farming and, er, and gardening as a tool for empowerment, employment, nutrition, um, for a really, um, a really, sh uh, a really low-income, struggling community in Bayview Hunters Point in uh, San Francisco. And I, for me, it was a, an incredible experience. I thought, you know, it's so important. How do we bring the how do we bring the farm into more urban environments? How do we get healthy food to people who can't afford it? Um, there's all these, you know, issues around food deserts and food justice, and I became really, really passionate about that. Um, sold the farm, sold the falafel cart, sold the pizza business, moved to San Francisco, Half Moon Bay, actually. And then, um, and he, the, the director at the time was also a landscape architect. And we had a whole team of landscape architects at Slug that were taking abandoned lots throughout the city of San Francisco that were places where drugs were getting dealt and there was violence and crime and all these issues and the city would just give them to us and then we would design community gardens, urban farms, bring the community in so they'd buy into it. They would kind of, um, we would create these amazing gardens all over the city. We had like hundreds of gardens around the city of San Francisco. I used to drive a tractor over like the highway overpasses and farming in the, in the hood. I would come in several times a month and help with some of our urban farming projects. And then we were training these youth in the prison and growing start starters and greenhouses that were then turning into food in these gardens all over these low-income housing projects all over San Francisco. And then those food would also get turned into value-added products. That was a social enterprise for teenagers who were high school dropouts. And um, we developed a whole business. It was a really amazing, amazing organization with all these great programs. And um, it was really, it was, I was, really inspired by what was going on there. But I also got really inspired to go back to school for landscape architecture because I saw the power of designing um, or designing the kind of communities that we want to live in that incorporate gardening and farming where people are, right? Really integrating it more into society. There's so many spaces in our urban and suburban environments that could be growing food and developing much stronger connections to the people who live there. And that really became kind of the driving force for me. And so I went back to school for landscape architecture and, um, and got into you know, design and designing farms. And while I was in school, I, um, two things happened. One is I revisited my Jewish farming idea. And while I was uh, getting my grades back up from a really you know, um, adventurous freshman year, let's say, 
the Grateful Dead were still playing in that year. It was their last year. So I was lucky I caught a lot of their shows their last year, but I did not catch a lot of my classes that year. So I had some, some making up to do. And so I went back to community college in Atlanta, moved, moved back to Atlanta where my family and where I grew up. And next door, the college campus was the Jewish Community Center that I grew up going to day camp at, that owned the summer camp, that I went to overnight camp. So I went to them again. I said, hey, you know, I'd love to build a garden, you know, in between my classes and maybe run a program for the summer with the kids. I've had this idea, kind of itching to try it out. And they were like, awesome. And they introduced me to some potential funders. I got a grant. I built this big garden at, this, at, the, uh, at the camp. And it was a huge success. Number one activity at camp, voted by the kids. You know, 37 activities. They loved being in the garden. I mean, these five-year-olds would come, like, running from swimming and be like, Farmer D, do we have, can I have some lemon leaves? And that's what they called sorrel. And they were just so into it. And it was, I could just see this was like, this is, this is what I needed to be doing. So I, I started a, a nonprofit to build gardens at summer camps, in particular Jewish summer camps, all over the country. And I got a fellowship grant in 2003 to kind of roll that out nationally. So I got funding to kind of support dedicating more time. So I built several um, gardens and farms actually in, in Jewish summer camps, retreat centers, uh, JCCs. Um, it was a blast. And I was basically traveling, designing these gardens, helping build them, train staff to run them, kind of come back and help them throughout the year. And it basically turned into a small little consulting nonprofit. Um, so that during that time, I was still going to school, and I eventually got myself into the University of Georgia into the landscape architecture program, and I was got hired by a professor at the school to start a farm on his 100 acres, six miles from campus, to do uh, organic farm agroecology research. It was a great gig. I kind of got paid to be at school and got to farm, but I was farming, I was going to school, and I was running a nonprofit. It was not sustainable. Um, so I went to the dean, and I'm like, I got to... I don't know what to do. Like, I don't want to drop out of school again, but like, I don't want to not, I got this fellowship grant and I'm flying all over the place and I got this farm I'm running. And he was like, you should drop out of school. <laughs> and I was like, really? And he's like, I'll give you a hard, uh, we usually do hardship, like only let people drop out if they have hardships, but like occasionally if there's a career opportunity, we'll give you like a career opportunity. So I don't get penalized for dropping out after the whatever. So he gave me, he gave me this, I was shocked. And he like cleared his desk and he's like, by the way, there's this amazing project south of Atlanta that you need to go visit and they need you. And it's called Serenby. And they're building a community and they want to do a farm and, you know, you're the perfect guy. And I, at the time, I kind of laughed at him like, you're giving me another project. Like I just told you how overwhelmed I am. But I ended up going to check it out. I was on the board for Georgia Organics at the time and we had an event out there. So I found myself there. And long story short, I ended up starting the farm for this developer um, in a, this community called Serenby, which this was 2002, I think it was. And it was really fascinating because here it was, like the answer to my, my, my like challenge, right, when I was on my farm in Wisconsin. Here's a farm that's getting built in the middle of a neighborhood, right, where the developer's actually going to pay for it and hiring me to create a farm and build community around it. It was kind of like this is this is great. I don't have to figure out the housing part. Somebody else is paying for the farm. It's a win-win, right? And so I couldn't not do it. It was just too interesting, and, and so I took it on. Um, so I did that in the nonprofit for a couple of years, three years, and the farm was a huge success. And actually what happened a couple of years in, I started getting all these other developers like, hey, can you come help me set up a farm in my community? 
I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. You know, I, I love starting farms, and then when it gets to, like, the operations and maintenance and day-to-day, it's like, you know, kind of, I mean, I, I love being in the, in the weeds, literally and figuratively, but it wasn't the highest, best use. I wanted to see, like, more of these projects, so I decided to be a consultant. Um, so I dropped out of school again at the, requ- at the suggestion of the dean, um, ran the farm at Serenby, and then I started consulting both for the Jewish organizations but mostly for developers. Um, so agriculture is the new golf, right? So now we're seeing like developments all over the country. It's a rapidly growing trend, especially post 2011. There was a there was a lull. There was a number of projects in like the early 2000s that got up and running, and then you know the economy crashed. There was a big lull. I took a, uh, a, a I won't go into the whole story, but I started a, my retail store in 08 when the economy kind of tanked. I had a compost business with Whole Foods and opened a retail store, essentially, and a wholesale uh, garden supply company, building raised beds and stuff like that out of Atlanta during 08 to 2011. And then the economy came back, and the consulting phone started ringing, and I was like, this is awesome. There's people building farms, you know, and they're being... And here's a situation where a developer owns the land, is dedicating a, a chunk of that land to be a farm. They're building out the farm. They're taking the risk. They're investing the capital. They're hiring the team. They're leveraging all their other resources and marketing and HR and all these other things that, they're, that they have robust um, organizational resources. And they're building a farm for the community. Um, it's a wonderful thing. And th- here's a model that is scalable, right? Because you got housing that's basically subsidizing and kind of uh, incubating a new community farm with a community that goes with it. So this was a really intriguing opportunity to me to see leveraging an existing um, reality that housing has to happen. I mean, you live in Orange County, right? You know this. In comes the Leash Tag Foundation. So in 2012, I get a, a call to say, hey, I, there's this project that's got your name kind of all over it. It's this Jewish foundation bought a farm. Like, that doesn't happen, right? Jewish foundations don't really buy farms. And it's in this really cool town, Encinitas. It's 67 acres. They want to do a Jewish community farm. They don't know what they're doing. Um, I think you should I think you should reach out. I'll introduce you. So, in, you know, I start talking to them, um, come out to visit, blown away. Like, here's the last. I don't know. Have any of you ever been down there to the to Coastal Roots Farm, Leash Tech? Just two? Um, so this was the historic Eki Ranch. This is where the poinsettia originated, right, the Christmas plant. Like one of the most, I think it's the most profitable potted plant on the planet. It's like, you know, they created an empire. And at one, it really made Encinitas the, like, flower capital of the world. And it started on this farm. And at one point, it was about 800 acres, uh, contiguous 800-acre f- farming operation of poinsettias. And this was, they started in the late 20s, the Eckies. They moved down from LA. From LA. So the, the, the Tag Foundation decided to buy this property in 2012 after the city had basically told the Eckies and the community had voted against it being developed. So no more development. This is our precious ag property. It's our logo of our city is the poinsettia. We don't want to see this farm go away. So this is like the last farm standing, right? And this is, this is something that we see happening all over the country right now, Southern California in particular. There's just a few ag properties left. I mean, the pressure is so intense that these last little pieces of agricultural land are highly threatened for, by development. And it's not really easy, if at all feasible, to farm anymore there. It's just the cost of farming and the challenges of farming in an urban environment. I 
the list goes on and on and on. I could give you the whole list. Um, and so the Leachtag Foundation was really bold and said, you know what, we're going to buy this thing and we're going to create a community farm. Um, we have, a, we have a, a mission that is about advancing self-sufficiency in North County, San Diego, addressing poverty, food insecurity. Um, they've been doing that through making grants to organizations all over North County. Um, they wanna, they're really passionate about cultivating vibrant Jewish life in North County. Um, it's a very dynamic Jewish community, largely interfaith community, people journeying through life with someone of another faith, not really looking for like synagogue life, but looking for you know, Jewish life that's more grounded in the environment, environmental stewardship, social justice work, community. Um, and the foundation, um, Leachtag Foundation also has a strong mission around um, showcasing partnerships between Israel and San Diego. And we do, uh, do grant making in Jerusalem in particular. Jerusalem's got its own crazy set of challenges, unique to anywhere in the world. And for some reason, they decided to tackle it. Um, and, and just to, you know, to honor Tony and Lee Leachtag, the reason why there was money to do this work is they, they uh, he developed the generic form of Ritalin. Uh, he was a pharmacist. They both grew up in poverty. Um, they never really saw their money as their own. They made a lot of it, and they left 99% of it for philanthropy, about $140 million that they left um, to do good work in, this, in that community. And those are the things they were passionate about. Um, and the person they kind of left when they passed away, and their, their daughter passed away as well, unfortunately, around 2007, 2009, they left our, our current CEO, who's a dear friend of theirs, um, and their lawyer in charge of kind of stewarding that, that trust. So to date, I think the foundation's given away um, about over $100 million in grants, um, largely in, in North County and, so, and in some in Jerusalem. Um, and we still, have, we still have some resources to give, and we've invested in a farm. Um, the foundation was planning to sunset, meaning they were gonna kind of phase, spend down, um, and then they bought a farm and thought, well, can we make this kind of an ongoing self-regenerative social enterprise that could you know, be a really cool legacy for the leash tags? And they had been following this trend of Jewish community farming and had been studying kind of what people in this community were interested in. And it kind of, the light bulb went off, Jewish community farm fits perfectly with Encinitas and us. Um, this is the last farm left, let's buy it and try to figure out how to do a Jewish community farm. And worst case scenario, you know, we guess we could sell it one day if we, if we fail. Um, it was pretty bold. And one of the things that's so unique about the property is that it's nested in a neighborhood of nonprofits. So you've got the Eki YMCA across the street with 22,000 members. You've got the Senior Retirement Village next door, the Leashtag uh, Seacrest Retirement Village, the Jewish home. You have uh, the San Diego Botanic Garden next door with uh, 37 acres adjacent to us, amazing botanic garden. They have two children's gardens, food forests, all kinds of cool stuff. You have the Encinitas Union School District with their farm lab site. I was out there this morning checking on our lettuce and carrots we're growing for organic vegetables for the school district, for the kids. Um, it's a 10 acre site that the school district turned into an organic farm to teach kids about farming and to grow food for the cafeteria. Um, there's a one acre community garden on that site and then there's the San Diego Heritage Museum next door as well. Um, teaches third grade curriculum about mostly agricultural heritage. So you've just got, you've got like 150 plus acre kind of campus of nonprofits all doing amazing work around, you know, from a kind of womb to tomb, health, wellness, environmental education, and the whole, the whole deal. It was a pretty spectacular community. In fact, a lot of the master plan developers that I work with, when we design farms, we try to 
connect them to the school and the senior housing. Like those are the two sweet spots, right? We just kind of landed in this organic situation that really works. The foundation, what's, what's, what I find really unique about our situation and one of the things that inspired me to move here with my family and, and help start the farm was that the foundation invests as a philanthropy in really building the field of Jewish community farming, of community farming, right? We were able as a foundation to support like these initiatives. So we, we incubated, um, we kind of were the first funder to start a Jewish community farming field building initiative. So we're actually next month flying, uh, we have uh, over about 20 of the Jewish community farms from around the country and actually in Canada, the UK and Israel all coming to the farm for three days for a field building retreat. And we talk about all kinds of, you know, we share resources and curriculum. We talk about challenges around gender and around fundraising and around, you know, evaluation and theory of change. And, and we just build, build a community, a community of practice around what does it mean to be a Jewish community farm and how do we develop professional talent for this field and how do we fundraise for this field. And, you know, how do we understand to what we do and do it better? And it's been amazing to see how other funders have gotten on board and more Jewish community farms are starting and they're feeling supported and there's like a good network. So along the same line, so we, we have that initiative. We also have an initiative where we're um, studying the community farming movement. Um, the Urban Land Institute, ULI, um, has a, a really cool um, food and real estate study that they're doing. Um, there, has anybody heard of the Urban Land Institute? A couple of folks. So they're a nonprofit that does amazing work around creating healthy places. Um, most, most of like the most innovative real estate developers, anyone involved in planning, development, civic, um, uh, kind of look at them as the resource. And so they've been seeing this trend, right, of these agri-hoods, as they're called, these community farms, food hubs, food halls, community gardens, um, popping up all over the place. And so they've been studying it. And so the foundation jumped in and, and supported this initiative to help them kind of take it to the next level and really study, again, kind of building the field of community farming. Because while there are a bunch of these kind of agri-hood projects going on, they're all over the map. And like a lot of them are being very experimental. They're complicated organisms, farms, community farms, even more so. How do you fund them? How do you sustain them? How do you staff them? You know, how do you preserve the land? How do you distribute your food? How do you deal with food safety? How do you deal with volunteers? And there's so many, you know, challenges and opportunities. So we're really studying it and trying to build resources as a foundation for the field of community farming. Um, among many other areas, we have, um, we have a, what's called the hive on our property, which is a, an old barn, the old original kind of packing barn that we turned into a co-working space. So there's about 35 nonprofits that office on the farm in this barn. Coastal Roots Farm, which is the nonprofit Jewish community farm, is based out of there. Um, a number of other nonprofits and a couple of Mission Aligned for-profits office out of there. Um, so that's a program of the foundation. And then Coastal Roots is um, on about 20 acres of the site. And it's a nonprofit community farm that was kind of incubated by the Leachtag Foundation. And, you know, we do a lot of similar things um, as Homegrown Orange in the center. We have a pay-what-you-can farm stand on site. Um, we distribute our food through local food pantries. Uh, we do a pop-up farm stand at Camp Pendleton, the military base, um, at Vista Community Clinic. These are free farm stands um, where we get good, healthy, organic food into um, communities who really need it. And then we do all kinds of programming for the community. We have a lot of school groups that come. 
um, with the public school, Jewish schools, boys and girls clubs. Uh, we run family programs on a regular basis for families to come to the farm. Um, we have kind of these general community festivals regularly to just invite the community to be on the farm. And, um, you know, we have food trucks and the farm stand and educational activities. And then we celebrate all the Jewish agricultural festivals, which there are many. We really mark the year with those and do fun celebrations with education, some ritual. Um, we bring different faith-based communities together to kind of explore traditional ways of farming and building community and stewarding the land and taking care of each other and all these things that you know all religions really have at their root values. Um, and we practice farming through a Jewish lens. So there's all these interesting Jewish farming traditions that we um, employ in how we farm. There's a concept called peya, which means edges or corners. And so in our farm, we've designed an edible food forest trail that is going to be part of the public trail system. And so it's this like 800-foot meandering trail that's all edible, being planted in all edible different fruit trees and berries. And, and it'll be there for the community to um, come in and harvest from those trees. That, the idea of Peya is that it's not a handout. It's not like you're giving someone food. You're actually inviting them into the farm to harvest for themselves. So that's a... a big project, um, one of that's been inspired by kind of ancient Jewish uh, farming wisdom. So yeah, and then we train young farmers. You know, we're looking, you know, we really see that there's a rapidly growing need for these farmers. You know, thankfully, there's a lot of these kinds of projects happening and, you know, development projects and schools and nonprofits, foundations. Um, there's a lot of, thankfully, you know, there's a lot of opportunities for, for farming and there's um, a lot of young people that are interested to get into it. So we're trying to develop of a training program for community farmers in particular um, to help them get the skills they need uh, not only to grow food and be good farmers but also good community educators ambassadors and know how about organizations and business and you know there's a lot of food safety there's a lot of things you got to learn to be a good farmer it's not just you know just it's not just growing food um, at the end of the day it's a, I see it more as a tool for growing community this has been really fun. Thanks for indulging me and letting me kind of uh, tell some stories and, and share. We appreciate it. The Purpose of Past Tense is produced by John Barrett-Ingles and Kevin Stanick. Our podcast manager is Sarah Becker. Special episodes are recorded by Brew Sessions Live. Music is composed by Dan Record and performed by Dan Record and Ed Benrock. If you like listening to our podcast, please consider subscribing and writing a review. You can also support 1888 and our mission by pledging today. For more information about the 1888 Podcast Network and all of our educational podcasts, you can visit us online at 1888.center/podcasts.